You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 2, chapters 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. There's a, there's a joke among pastors that if you want to grow a church, what you need to do is preach a sermon series on marriage. Seems to have a, a natural draw. Like there's something about taking two sinners and, and putting them in close proximity, making them share all of life together, do finances together, deal with in-laws together, the whole kids, the whole kit and caboodle. You put two sinners together and certainly there becomes a need. There, there's a demand to, to give a, a great deal amount of attention and invest in this relationship. It's, it's the most important relationship that you'll have. So when a church starts to do a, a marriage series, people tend to, to flock in because we always seem to need help with marriage, right? And this is something, as I look back at the history of the past six years of, of Sacred City Moline, while, while we've never done a marriage series just to grow a church, we have frequently visited the topic of marriage, um, I, I went back and I did the math. If you take out uh, the four Sundays a, a, a year for Advent, um, then one in 12 sermons that I preach from this pulpit are in relationship to marriage. Like one in 12, that's, that's a lot of time, a lot of time that we spend investing on the topic of marriage. And once again today in this series that we're calling Origins, we come back to the topic of marriage. And as we've dealt with marriage differently in the past, today, today I'm going to take a different approach to this topic. And, and let me tell you, first, one thing that's going to be different is, is as we, um, in the past when I've preached on marriage, we usually use a New Testament passage sort of as our primary reference point. Ephesians 5, First um, Peter, there, there's several places, Colossians speaks of, of marriage, there's several places throughout scripture, the New Testament specifically, that we go to, and if you're gonna camp out, marriage sermon, that's it. Well, today, 
We're doing things a little bit differently. We're, we're, we will use the New Testament, but we're primarily sinking our feet down in Genesis chapter two. This is where the origins of marriage are revealed to us. This is the very beginning of marriage. Now, one of the things that uh, a critique that modern people have, especially as it comes to, to viewing um, marriage through the lens of the New Testament, is that as the apostles write um, th these New Testament passages, they're doing so uh, to a very narrow um, and, and specific culture. So, so some of the things is they teach husbands to love their wives in a certain way and, and wives to honor their husbands in a certain way. They, they would look at this as sort of a critical lens and say, well, this isn't, this isn't an absolute application of marriage. Rather, this is a culturally flavored treatment of Marriage. Therefore, there's a lot of times where people would dismiss what the Bible has to say. They, they abandon those things rather to adopt the, the new wisdom, um, wisdom that, that the humanity has come up with, with uh, within the, the topic of marriage. But in going back to Genesis chapter two, what we see is that this is the foundational passage for every other New Testament treatment of marriage. Every time that marriage is talked about in the New Testament, it comes back to the creational order that we see in Genesis chapter two. In fact, in Matthew 19, we see Jesus talking on marriage. And the very first thing he does is, is goes, Don't, did you not remember that back in the beginning, he takes you right back to this foundational text in Genesis chapter two. And so whenever we, we, we go and work through marriage, we also have to, uh, to think about it in relationship to Genesis chapter two. We're going back to the beginning. So that's the first thing. Genesis chapter two is the home base today. Second, the second difference between this time and, and previous uh, times we would preach on marriage is that usually we extend things out a little bit. We, we turn it into a, a mini series. We give ourselves four, five, six, sometimes even eight, nine weeks to work through this topic of marriage because there's, it's, a, it's a huge topic. There's lots of moving pieces. There's lots of things to speak to, to work through the, the, the nuts and the bolts and the day-to-day -day stuff of marriage. But today we're just taking one Sunday. I've got 45 minutes to look at marriage, which means that, that I can't dig in as much as I'd like to, which in that case, if you're looking for some real practical stuff, the sermon archive is up online. You can dig through all those, those past marriage sermons. But today we're gonna take an aerial view, a 30,000 foot view of marriage and focus on three things. Three things that we need to understand about marriage as Genesis chapter two reveals to us. First, we're gonna talk about the origin of marriage. Then we're gonna talk about the definition of marriage. And third, we're gonna talk about the purpose of marriage. Now it's important to have these big aerial pieces in view because if we don't know what marriage is and what marriage is for, then, then the, even the best tips and tricks or the best, best practical advice for marriage becomes irrelevant because we don't understand what they're for in the big picture of things. So today, trying to zoom up, zoom out, big picture of marriage. And as we get going here, what, what I wanna do is first set the stage um, as we've been going through Genesis chapters one and two, uh, Genesis chapter one reveals the, the seven days of creation. Genesis chapter two takes a, a, an op gives us an opportunity to look in on day six of creation and what God has done to create man and woman on the sixth day. 
And what we saw that when, when God first created Adam, he took him, he formed him from the ground, he breathed life into his nostrils and then placed him in the garden of Eden and he told him to take care of it. This is your home, this is your space, take care of it. And, and even though Eden was beautiful and, and Adam was, was sort of the, the apex, humanity being the apex of God's creation, God looks at Adam by himself, standing alone in the garden as all of these creatures walk past him, seeing that it's, none of them are a suitable helper for Adam. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. You see this in verse 18 of Genesis chapter three. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, make him a helper fit for him. And so what we see is that God creates woman. He takes a rib out, puts Adam deep sleep, takes a rib out of him, forms woman around this rib. And, and just as she is made from the man, she is made for the man. We talked about this last week as we talked about gender. And then God takes this woman and he presents the woman to man. It's almost as if you can imagine God walking her down the aisle, a groom standing at the front of the altar. They're getting all teary-eyed, right? Watching his bride come down and he just erupts with this poetry. The first ever recorded poem, he says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gushes after this woman, this beautiful creature that God has made, tailor-made just for him. And then God proceeds to officiate the very first marriage we've ever seen, Genesis chapter two, verse 24. This is, this is a short and sweet ceremony. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this, is, this tips us off to the very first piece that we're talking about today, the origin of marriage. Where did it come from? It came from, marriage came from the mind of God. Just like gender being God's very good idea, marriage is God's very good idea as well. Adam didn't come up to God one day and say, you know what, God, I got this idea. Let me just run it past you. What if you took me and made her cuter, longer hair, right? Adam didn't do that. It was God's idea to create Eve for the man, from the man, for the man. And God then created and instituted what we now call marriage. It's not a, it's not a social construction. It's not a, a, a cultural, in fact, this is one of the things that you know, because in almost every single human culture, there is some kind of an arrangement like marriage. It's not unique to individual cultures. This is something that God instituted in the very beginning, and it has spread throughout all of humanity. It has a divine origin. Marriage is God's idea. And as a, God is the originator of marriage, the creator of marriage, God then gets to choose how marriage is designed. This is the second piece. How does God define marriage? We can look at it in two ways. God defines marriage two C's. One, by covenant, and two, by composition. Covenant and composition. God defines marriage with covenant and composition according to his good wisdom and good pleasure. So let's take a look. First, composition. 
How does God define marriage? What is his definition for marriage? Who makes up what constitutes a marriage? Verse 24, we see it's one man and one woman. One man, one woman, that's it. The template that is given to us in Genesis chapter two is not a cultural manifestation of what marriage looks like. It is the divine template is unchanging throughout time, culture, and space. This is what marriage is. And Jesus affirms and upholds this creational design of marriage when he is speaking on the topic in Matthew chapter 19. If you got a Bible you want to open up with me in Matthew 19, keep, keep one finger in Genesis chapter three, we're gonna, two, we're gonna bounce back there. But in Matthew 19, I think we should have it on the screen here. Matthew 19, chapter four, Jesus is asked about marriage. He answers the Pharisees who come up to him and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Do you, do you, if you flip back to Genesis chapter two, do you see almost exactly a quotation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus, his vision of marriage didn't change because God's word doesn't change. The design, the template of marriage that we have received in Genesis chapter 2 is the same throughout all time, cultures, and space which means the composition of marriage is one, monogamous, meaning it's one man and one woman. There, there's no trios or, or, or quads or, you know, you move down the, 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 the spectrum of polygamy, that, that's not marriage. It's monogamous, one man, one woman for life, and it's heterosexual. Two different but similar. So man and woman, both made in the image of God. Anything contrary to this composition, be it polygamy or, or gay marriage, is a counterfeit of marriage. It is illegitimate. It is not marriage as God constitutes. So that's the composition. And, and listen, the more that we believe the Bible and hold to what it says the more we will find ourselves at odds with a culture that says marriage can be whatever you want it to be because it's man-made. I get to choose. But that is, not a, that is a proud posture towards marriage. Humility is coming underneath God's design and how God has created marriage to be, how he's composed marriage. Now, the second thing is covenant. The second C of God's design for marriage is covenant. This speaks to the, the nature or the kind of relationship that marriage is because it's more than just a friendship. It's more than just a, a, a partner relationship as like, you know, co-workers or whatever, something along those lines. It's, there's something unique and special to uh, the relationship of marriage because it is a covenant now, while we don't see the word covenant used in Genesis chapter two, we see the concept of covenant um, being applied specifically to the marriage relationship um, in multiple places, but one of the most explicit passages is in Malachi chapter two. 
Speaking of, of the wife of your youth by covenant. She's your bride by covenant. And so marriage is a covenant. And, and the word covenant, our English word covenant comes from the Latin word coming together. This, this coming together of the two, which is what we see specifically in verse 24 of Genesis chapter two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Or as Jesus says, the two shall become one flesh. There is this coming together of the two into the one where um, if, if, you, if you're a new King, uh, King James type folk, uh, you probably heard to leave and to cleave, to leave your parents and to cleave to your spouse to hold fast, that this union, this joining together of the two is profound. This is the nature of covenant. The covenant binds them together, just holding fast of the two to become one flesh. And when man and wife come together, this covenant is not to be a, a temporal thing in the sense that, that you can go through different seasons of your life and it becomes optional if you're going to uphold this covenant or not. It's meant to be a lifelong commitment. It is a solemn vow. Marriage covenant is a solemn vow made between a man and a woman before God Almighty. Just as Adam and Eve stood there in the presence of God as he officiated their wedding, every single marriage reflects the same reality. They're being two being united as one before the Almighty God. And it's by God's power and strength and grace that the vows that are made between man and wife are kept and strengthened for the long haul. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus refers to, if you jump back to Matthew 19, uh, as he finishes up that statement about the, in the beginning, if I go back to the right passage here, he says, so there are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together let no man separate. Marriage is meant to be a long, lifelong commitment, a covenant relationship that offers a framework of stability and the infrastructure for human flourishing. Marriage covenant looks the other person in the eye and says, I, I know you're a sinner. I know you've got defects and places where God needs to work on you and grow you, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. And then the partner looks right back in their eyes and say, I know you're messed up. I know you're a broken sinner and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. That is what marriage covenant is. A solemn vow made between man and woman before God and by his grace, it's kept. Now, this is one of the things that sets Christian marriage apart from um, marriage in the world of, of secular people. There, there is a, um, while I think it's, it, the culture might have an appreciation and acknowledge that marriage is a special kind of relationship, there is a gravity of Christian marriage that is not necessarily reflected in a cultural understanding of marriage. Because in the eyes of our culture, marriage isn't viewed covenantally under God. Marriage is viewed contractually. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about marriage. If, 
one, there, there's a delay in people getting marriage because you'll hear things like saying, well, I don't, I don't need to get married. I don't need a silly piece of paper to tell somebody that I, how's, here's how I feel about them. Right? I don't, you know, the tax break would be nice and all, but I don't really need, I don't want to make that kind of, so it's viewed as this contractual relationship where there's a statement of obligations, the terms are laid out, and where a covenant is an ongoing thing, where, where there is really no out, the contractual view of marriage says, well, here's my, here's my exit ramp if, if something does not go the way that I like. Here's how I get out of this. If you don't hold your obligations, if you don't keep the terms of this relationship, and in culture, you see this getting played out on a large scale. People are utilizing the escape hatch in marriage, so much so that in the United States, 50% of marriages end in divorce. The average length of marriage in America is seven to eight years. Why? Well, because marriage is viewed contractually, not covenantally. Now this, this ought to concern us a bit because the strength of marriages will determine the strength of the nation. Marriages are the foundational building blocks of the society. That if you take marriage out of the equation, a society will collapse. If, if you build a society out of weak marriages, of, of uncommitted marriages, of these hot and cold marriages, it will lead to a decaying society. Not only in the, the given moment, not, any, not only in real time, but then it sets the trajectory for the next generation and it gets worse and worse and worse unless God's grace intervenes and redeems and brings back marriage to what it's supposed to be. See, if you, if you reject God's design for marriage, it will not only destabilize the family, it will destabilize the entire society. So it's important Right? If, we talk, if we're a church that talks about renewing the city, then one of the first places where we go to work is on our own marriage. Like we do the hard work, we dig in. So where, where do I need to grow? How, how, husbands, how can I lead my wife so she flourishes and blossoms? Because the state of your household, listen, husbands, I can come to you and look and say, um, if I wanna know how your household is going, I, I go and look at your wife. Is she flourishing? She's not, well, she's your responsibility. It's, it's your duty to lead her and, and foster growth and excitement in the gospel that she would flourish and blossom into the beautiful, godly woman she was made to be. And the same goes for your children. So when we're talking about renewing the city, we dig in first, digging into renewing our marriages. Now, as I lay out the, the origins and the definition of marriage, I would imagine for most of us in the room who love the Bible, who, who believe this is the, the infallible, inerrant word of God, we understand those two pieces and we hold to marriage as the Bible defines. Yet, you can still make a mess of marriage if you do not know the purpose of marriage. If you don't know what your marriage is meant to accomplish, I mean, and maybe you don't even realize that, that your marriage is more than just, you know, 
linking you together with somebody that you get to share a house with for the rest of it. Like God brought you and your spouse together. God is bringing you and your future spouse together to accomplish something. Now, the glory of, uh, of marriage is that there, it does so many different things. We could, I could spend literally a whole sermon series digging into these things, but I, I wanna nail three things down here, three primary purposes of marriage. Number one, purpose number one. God gives us marriage as a means of union. When God looks at Adam when he's by himself, he says it's not good for him to be alone. And he creates a woman and gives, gives her to him. They come together. He gushes. It's awesome. It's exciting. This wedding goes. God gave Adam Eve so that he would be united to her and find a deep sense of connectedness to have that partner that he didn't have before. The partner that all of the other animals, Adam, Adam was there sitting for a minute thinking, is the rest of my life going to be bound to cuddling cats? And God said, no, I'm going to give you a helpmate. I'm going to give you a woman that you can appreciate and enjoy. Someone who's like you created in the image of God. And when God says that it's not good for Adam to be alone, this reveals to us, and this might blow your mind, that Adam in himself is incomplete. Adam is incomplete in a way that God himself cannot fulfill so that he needs to make a woman. He's missing the Imago Dei counterpart. He needed woman. And so God creates a woman, and with woman, he brings them together in this deep union where the two become one flesh, and we get to see the enjoyment. Verse 25 of Genesis 2 tells us, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That speaks to a deep connectedness. And if you're married, you get to experience a glimpse of this. Even though sin is very much in this world, sin, sin has cursed the world where it's hard to have relationships. The idea of being naked is scary. But in marriage, in the covenant of marriage, there is a small oasis. When you are fully immersed in, some, in relationship with somebody else, you get to enjoy the relationship, relationally, emotionally, physically, of being together to be naked and unashamed. Adam needed Eve and God provided union. Marriage is meant to provide us union. Now, whenever I preach on marriage, I, I was primarily speaking to married folks in the room, but I also know that there's single people in the room too. And it's easy to kind of check out and say, well, what's this got to do with me? I'm not married. And, and sometimes when I say something like that, that marriage is for completion, marriage is for union, people kind of, well, what do you mean? If I'm single, does that mean I'm incomplete? Does that mean I'm less than these other marriages? That's not, that's not it at all. See, there are some people that God will call to a life of singleness. I think it's a very small percent of people that are called to this lifestyle. But there are some that God calls to singleness and God gives himself in a special way to meet the needs um, and provide for those needs within the congregation, within the church body that, that provides satisfying relationships and emotional connection with other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And in that, God glorifies himself by providing for you a place within the marriage of God, the, the Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride, right? You get to participate in that relationship. Now, the singles who maybe are not called to this or, or have a longing for marriage or being uh, connected to someone in this way, what I'd say to you is learn to be content in this moment while also praying and petitioning for the Lord to bring a godly spouse to you. And as you pray and petition for the Lord to bring that person into your life, you need to prepare yourself for that person by pursuing your own sanctification. And the primary place where discipleship happens is within the context of community, right? Being with other people, preparing yourself for your future spouse. That was a sidebar. So that's the first purpose, though. Marriage is meant for union. Now, to plunge to the depths of this glorious union requires selfless fidelity. This union doesn't happen accidentally, especially being on this side of the curse, where, where our hearts are often um, guarded, where we've had wounds before in past relationships that make us sensitive, that's hard for us to drop our guard and really get to know somebody. God's grace sustains us and moves us to this deep connection through selfless fidelity. Fidelity meaning that you have eyes for only your spouse. Husbands, your wife should be your standard of beauty. Everybody else gets measured up against her and everybody else is failing because she's your standard. Your eyes are only for her. That's the kind of fidelity. And then you pour your heart and your resources and energy into curating her and making her beautiful as Christ beautifies the church. That's the kind of fidelity. And to do this faithfully requires selflessness. To do this to foster deep connection means that you must willingly pour yourself out to fill the other person up. And this works both ways. Husbands are to lay, Ephesians 5, to lay yourself down as Christ laid his life down for the church. Wives, to submit to, the, to your husband as the church submits to her savior Christ. Right? This requires selflessness. It's not about me. It's ultimately about the other, but ultimately, ultimately about God's glory. To pour yourself out, to bless the other person. And the first person to do this is husbands. The first person to lay down on the barbed wire is husbands. Because your joy is in your spouse's joy, in your wife's joy. And the more you pour yourself out, the more this union deepens. There's no shortcuts to it. it. Comes through selfless fidelity. Now, the second purpose of marriage is that marriage is a multiplier of effectiveness. Now, if you remember, if you go back to Genesis 1, God gives, God gives mankind a task, an assignment. When he creates, he says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and every creepy thing. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God has given humanity a task. 
In fact, this, this cultural mandate, as it's called, is the driving story of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is to show how humanity steps into the assigned call from God to fill the earth and subdue it. And the means in which we do that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Filling the earth, subduing it, exercising dominion, that's the main thrust of the story of God. And as Adam is appointed to this mission, we also see that Eve is given this mission as well. That is, as they, to, as they collaborate together, they, they've been uniquely wired for unique responsibilities and roles. God brings them together and makes Adam to take the lead as the head and Eve to come alongside of him as a helper to multiply their effectiveness. Together, they can accomplish more than if they were split apart. And so God creates the union of marriage to make man and woman more effective in God's call of dominion. Now, young men, this means before you pursue a lady, you would do well to find a mission first. Find a thing to do. How are you going to exercise Dominion. What does it look like for you to step in to the cultural mandate of filling and subduing the earth? And guess what? When you learn to vocationally exercise dominion, you then have an opportunity to provide for your future family. And a man who works hard and knows his calling is attractive to godly women. She's drawn to, just as much as she's drawn to the man, she's drawn to the mission that the man is for. And so you would do well to find a mission and give yourself to it. Now, ladies, it's also helpful to remember that when you marry a man, he has a mission and you're called to partner with him in this collaborative work. You marry, just as you marry a man, you marry into his mission. Now this is why, this is why it's essential to marry fellow Christians. Because in order for you to share a mission, in order for you both to move in the same direction, to give yourselves, here's the telos, here's the end goal, here's what we're working for, you have to have the shared faith. Because if you don't share this, then your house will be divided. And a house divided cannot stand. Your husband will be going this way, you'll be going that way. Your wife will be going this way, you'll be going that way. You'll have this, this nagging of enmity and strife that has plagued your relationship. So it's important to realize that marriage is for multiplying effectiveness. And purpose number three goes hand in hand with number two. It's an extension of this. Is marriage is for procreation. Marriage is for having babies. Adam couldn't do it by himself. So God gives woman the physical capabilities of being able to, to um, carry and uh, nurture and then give birth to another human baby. And this is how 
They are to fill the earth with other image bearers, right? The calling for married people is to fill the earth with little Jesus-loving image bearers and disciple them in the way of the Lord. This is part of what marriage is for. This means that a marriage without a vision for kids, a marriage without a vision for kids goes against God's design for marriage. If you're sitting there thinking, ew, kids, I don't want kids. Ew, gross. I don't like kids. That is not a Christian thought. Jesus loves the children. They're a blessing from the Lord. But in our society, kids are viewed as a hindrance to the fun. Kids are viewed as a distraction. But kids are central to the mission that God has given humanity to fill the earth and to subdue it. And usually this attitude comes from, a pro, it's a product of selfishness. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna give up my freedom for that. Comfort, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna compromise my comfort. But, but another way that it comes about is um, self-preservation. I've heard this multiple times um, in my life as a pastor, where single women, though they have a desire deep in their heart of hearts, that they, they, they don't want to wear that out on their sleeve because they're afraid they'll be let down. So they put up this facade, ew, girl, I don't want, I don't want marry, eh, I don't know, eh. And it's a self-protecting thing. It is a good thing to desire marriage. It's a good thing desire children. It's a blessing from the Lord. And if we despise this future blessing, we are turning God's hands away. Now, as I say that, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are factors that will prevent married couples from having babies. That's a reality. We live in a cursed world you see that this is a cadence that comes up in the Old Testament. You see, see women who want babies that can't have babies. I know that that's still a reality. And, and this reality usually comes with great grief, comes with a lot of prayer and fasting because there's a desire, there's a desire to be fruitful. And if that is the reality for you, if, if biological kids is not a possibility, there are still other ways for God to use your marriage within the church of investing in the children, the next generation of this church family you're in now. To, to be a kind of, of surrogate bonus parent within the church. To use your maternal, your paternal giftings, that, that inclination that God has given you, and to bless other families with it. Another way is adoption. Right? To, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose it here emotionally. Because there's nothing more powerful than the story of adoption. To tell of what God has done for us, to bring us into his family. We were once orphans of wrath and God brought us in with gladness, laying his own, sacrificing his own son so he could do so. Adoption is a way that we can fulfill the cultural mandate to fulfill, to fill the earth and subdue it. 
See, there, there are lots of godly ways to cultivate life, right? To, to create life and cultivate it. And so those are the big three. Those are the three main purposes of marriage for, for union, for, for multiplying effectiveness, and for procreation. Those are the, the big daddies of the purpose of marriage. Now, the problem with gay marriage, it's not really marriage, is that not only is homosexuality a sin, not only does it break the created norm, it totally ignores the origin, design, and purpose of marriage. In this counterfeit marriage, there's no complementary union. There's, there's no male-female reciprocal created for one another, physically, not created for one another. There's not the ability to multiply effectiveness to carry out the mission of God because if you cannot, if you cannot subdue your own sinful desires, how are you going to subdue the earth? And they certainly can't procreate. See, this is why Christians, this is why Christians ought to take a stance on this. Like, this is not a, 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 an insignificant thing that our culture is just running with. This is a sinful appropriation of marriage. It does not glorify God. Now, in the same breath that I stand up here and denounce gay marriage as illegitimate, say that, that, that there is no viability in this, there is no glorifying God in that kind of a relationship. The same moment I say this, we must also carefully and tediously examine our own marriages, lest our marriage dishonors God's design and purpose, making ourselves hypocrites. We must hold up the magnifying glass and say, am I using this rightly? Is my selfishness eroding the union that God has given me to enjoy? Are my lusts, are my eyes causing me to be unfaithful? Is my marriage productive? Are we are we actually doing what the Lord has called us to do? Are we having kids? Are we raising our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Are we fostering a home, a life, a marriage that leads to life and vitality and joy and flourishing? Because if we're not, we too are to be pitied. We're squandering the gift of marriage that God has given us, not only for, for our own enjoyment, for the sake of God's mission and his glory. Now, I realize that there are, there are um, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage because in every marriage, there's two sinners, which means that in every marriage, there's opportunity for growth. In every marriage, there's a place where you 
need to be sanctified, where the gospel of grace needs to get into the heart and change things in you so that you will become a, a more devoted, faithful, selfless spouse, more productive, more, more fruitful, subduing, exercising dominion. And it's because sin has gotten into this world one of the primary places where the devil tries to get at and tries to corrupt and tries to destroy is marriage. But Jesus has come to the world, not just to save us from our sins, not just to pay the price for our sins and offer us forgiveness, that he does, but Jesus comes to make all things new, to restore marriage back what it was meant to be, to take it back to the pre-fall reality of the purpose, the design, and the origins of marriage so that God would be glorified in this. And, and Jesus shows us how he does this by putting on flesh, that Jesus steps into the world as a groom. He's got his eyes set on the wedding day. And he sees the bride that, that the Lord has appointed for him, that God the Father has said, this, this is who you're going to, to devote yourself to. And she's, she's a hot mess, guys. Blemishes and wrinkles and spots and all the nastiness of sin, just, it's just kind of, and Jesus looks at her. And when I say her, I'm talking about us. I'm talking about us. When Jesus looks at her, he says, this is the one. This is the one who I'm committed to. And while we, the church, walk away from God and we, we rebel against God and we, we do all these things to push against the love of God, Jesus had a resolute love for us, a covenant-keeping love. That to the end, Jesus stayed the course to fulfill the purpose which God assigned him. And on that cross... He makes the ultimate sacrifice and lays down his life. He lays down his life for an undeserving, unfaithful, ugly bride. And then he washes her with his blood. He purifies her. He, he cleanses her of her sin. And the spirit of God then comes to dwell inside her. So this is the story, this is the meta story, the meta narrative of the church. Now, when God created marriage in Genesis chapter two, God had Revelation 19 in mind, which is the marriage supper of the lamb. He created marriage knowing that marriage would be corrupted by sin and the fall and God would send his son to redeem marriage and restore it back to the glory that it was intended to be. That's the big story. And now the little story inside of that is all of our marriages that are meant to reflect this meta story. So your marriage is meant to point to the gospel of a Christ who laid his life down for his bride, of a bride who joyfully submits and honors her husband. And the way that we do this in our lives as husbands and wives and those pursuing marriage is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would empower us to honor God, realizing that marriage is, his, his, is originated with him, it's designed by him, and it has a purpose that's ultimately aimed towards God's own glory. See, this is, this is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Marriage isn't about you. It's about God's glory. 
And the more that we order our homes, our lives, our marriages to reflect the story of Christ and his bride, the more glory abounds. Now we're gonna come here and share this meal. And as you partake in this meal, Christian, I want you to think of this meal in the three tenses, past, present, future. Past meaning that Christ, that this represents, this is, these, these elements represent the body and blood of Jesus being given for you. There was a once and for all sacrifice that was issued to pay for your sins. The things that stand in the way of you being a godly spouse. Jesus paid for it. The future reality is that one day we will stand with Christ in glory at the feast of the Lamb. That this is a foretaste of the joyous feast that is to come. It's a, it's a wedding celebration. And so in one sense, we, we acknowledge the, 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 the somberness of the fact that Christ died in order to give us this meal, but he died in order to give us a joyful meal, a celebration of life, resurrection life. And in the present tense, this meal is what sustains us. There's a, a su I can't even explain it. There's a supernatural reality that comes with eating this meal. There is a, a unique presence as Christians break the bread and drink the cup. And it is this table that enables us to live according to God's ways. There's a, there's a supernatural strength in this meal that allows you to go back home and be a better husband, to be a better wife, to prepare yourself for marriage one day because Christ loves you. He loves his church, he loves his bride. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you that we've done nothing to deserve anything. And we stand here among the saints this morning as, as people who have been bought by the blood of Christ that we were, we were up to our necks in sin, that we were not marriage material at all. Yet, God, you set your love on us. and Christ, you came to redeem for yourself a people. In the spirit, you, you fill us up so that we would honor God and Christ in all that we do. So we, we ask this morning as we take this, this meal, would you remind us of the past, present, and future realities of this? And would you make our, our marriages a more potent demonstration of the gospel of Christ for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.